what? This already sounds different. Why? What is? What's happening? Is this? Oh, it's because it's from a Facebook Live. If you're not following the Cultural Hall on all social medias, take a second at the Cultural Hall. It's episode number 498 of the Cultural Hall. We visit with Richard Turley in this episode. Uh, we talk all about murder among the Mormons and Mark Hoffman. We also get all sorts of in the weeds. So, couple recommendations, and you'll hear us say this within the episode. If you have not yet watched the Murder Among the Mormons series over on Netflix, you are going to get nothing but spoilers within this talk. We don't even try and really explain the whole thing to you. We're expecting that you have already done that before you listen to this episode. So I hope that uh, you enjoyed the conversation I have with Richard Turley. I also want you to send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. You've said, oh yeah, Richie asked for this and I haven't done it yet. Yeah, well, you only have a couple of days left to get this to me. Tell me what the Cultural Hall has meant to you. Some people have done that in an audio format. That's great. You can just record something into your phone and then email it, contact at theculturalhall.com. Other people have just sent an email and said, hey, you know what, this, you can tell me things like your favorite episode, how you felt when you found it. Uh, some people have shared their experiences with finding the Cultural Hall during the pandemic and what that's meant to them. I just want to hear from you. Heck, even if you hate this thing, if you're like, this is abysmal, I can't believe you do this, I just listen because I can't wait for the day that you say this is the last episode, whatever the case may be, I hope that you will reach out, contact at theculturalhall.com. I will share most, if not all, of those emails and correspondence as part of the 500th episode celebration. Also, big news. Are you listening? Did your ears perk up when I said big news? We are going to make available in the next coming weeks all of the first 300 episodes of The Cultural Hall in one podcast feed. What? You don't have to go to the website to download them like you can right now? That's right. You heard me. They are going to be available in a podcast feed so you can become a lifer of the cultural hall not just a convert a lifer with pioneer stock of the cultural hall and the only way you'll be able to do that you knew there was another shoe to be dropped the only way you'll be able to do that is by becoming a patreon saint so go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall so what do we do we send an email contact to the tell us what you love or what you hate just send some sort of correspondence we're 500 episodes almost for crying out loud also, if you want to hear those first 300 episodes and do it easy, where you just subscribe to a feed and boom, 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 they're there. You don't have to worry about it. Make sure you become a Patreon saint. Consider it like a gift to us for the 500th episode. Perfectly fine. And uh, lastly, enjoy this episode of The Cultural Hall. All right, everyone, uh, welcome. We finally got some uh, technical difficulties sort of worked out, and we are going to be with uh, Richard Turley. You might have seen him in Murder Among the Mormons, the three-part series over on Netflix. He has been here in the Cultural Hall previously. Thank you. I, I appreciate that you're willing to come back. Most people wouldn't come back if they've been here one time, so... I'm glad I'm glad you're willing to do it. I need to tell you this before we get into Murder Among the Mormons. First of all, uh, search old episodes of the Cultural Hall. He was in the early 400s when Richard was on with us. I think 416. Did you know, Richard, when you um, Google your name, you just type in your name, you get Richard Turley, but then uh, other things underneath it are Richard Turley True Love. You get Richard Turley Interview Magazine, Richard Turley MTV, which I'm curious to see what that's all about. 
Uh, and then you get Richard Turley, MD. That's not who we're speaking to tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about all things uh, Mark Hoffman, uh, Salamander. We've got a bunch of questions that we fielded from people. Thank you for being here, Richard. Happy to be here. And the the true love is a talk I gave at BYU-Idaho years ago in a devotional there. The MD is someone different, and the MTV is a different Richard Turley. Okay, okay. I was really hoping that we were going to see you featured in an MTV music video, um, but... I, I guess not. That's fine. Fine by me. <laughs> Let, let's set the stage. Hopefully, um, I would imagine anyway, that most people that are going to be watching this are because they've seen Murder Among the Mormons over on Netflix. Maybe they had never heard about it before. Um, but there is the off chance that people haven't seen that and don't even know what this is. So I would love for you to just sort of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about tonight. Sure. Murder Among the Mormons is a three-part miniseries on Netflix that essentially begins with a, an episode that talks about the bombings in Salt Lake City. Number two takes you to Mark Hoffman. This is a bit of a spoiler alert, so <laughs> if you, you want to watch it, you might want to just close your ears for the next 15 seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the second episode, the, the filmmakers, Tyler Meesham and, and Jared Hess, allow you to see that Mark Hoffman is potentially a victim or potentially the criminal. And then in the third episode, it becomes very clear that he's a pathological murderer and liar. And so it, it, it is a very nice, dramatic presentation of the case. It follows very much, in many ways, my book that I wrote about it, the Mark Hoffman case in 1992 called Victims. And, and that, is that book available if people want to read it? Is there a sort of a resurgence in interest that you've seen even just in the last few days? Yeah, there's been a huge, I mean, it was, since I published it in 1992, there were a lot of copies on the used market. Mm-hmm. Uh, a nephew who was looking for a copy today told me that it was 75 bucks on Amazon. And then I just checked a minute ago and it's up to $95, but no, no worries. We've got a reprint coming with a, an appendix that I added, or not an appendix, an afterword, I guess you might call it, uh, of a few pages sort of bringing things up to date that should be out by Friday. So you should be able to find that on Amazon. Uh, people will ask, and uh, maybe this is a great place to start, uh, who are you to have written a book about Mark Hoffman and about everything that happened in the 80s? On January the 20th, 1986, I became the, what was then called the assistant managing director. Today, we call it the managing director of the church history department. So I was the senior staff member in the church history department on January 20th, 1986, and for the next uh, 22 years in that role, and then eight more years as assistant church historian in that department, along with other things that I've done subsequently. And so I had a role as a fly on the wall during the investigation. I, I did not no, Mark Hoffman. I did not have anything to do with the acquisition of any documents by him, but I was a fly on the wall in the investigation. The church history department at the time was, was in effect, a crime scene. It's a place where Mark Hoffman committed some of his crimes. And so we had everything but the yellow police tape up. And so I was able to watch the county attorneys and the police detectives and the document examiners do their work. So you, you take over in 86... Is that because the guy who uh, had been a part of this at the end of everything with Hoffman just said, hey, listen, I'm done. I'm retiring. Somebody else, give it to Richard. No, actually, during that time period, the church had a mandatory age 70 retirement, and the man I replaced was turning 70. Okay. So that had to do with his age at the time. Anyway, uh, because I had that front row seat to the investigation and because I, I saw a lot that was unfolding, I decided to write my own book about the subject. So it's called Victims, the LDS Church and the Mark Hoffman Case, published by University of Illinois Press in 1992. And as I said, it's going to be reprinted here this week, and you should be able to find it on Amazon. Or if you can't find it there, you can go to Benchmark Books. They'll have it as well. 
Did uh, anyone in the church, when you started out writing this book, say, hey, wait a minute, that seems like a little personal interest or, or a conflict of interest since you were working with the history department and for the church, but then doing this on the side? So I, I actually explain the origin of that in a biography I just published of President Dallin H. Oaks. In there, I explain that essentially church leaders had the idea that, hey, it would be nice if there was a book from an insider, a church insider. And I had the idea at the same time, it was kind of a chicken and egg deal. Now looking at it in retrospect, I think they thought it was their idea. I thought it was my idea because I had proposed it to somebody ahead of that. And so I completed the book thinking that, hey, this was my idea. But looking back, it appears that it was a chicken and egg kind of deal. But the bottom line is I had full cooperation. I was able to get the, the information that I needed from the, the, the most senior church leaders. Uh, so I think it's a very thoughtful and clear, straightforward look at what happened from the vantage point of the, the church. Now, the, the greatest victims in this case by far were the two murder victims, Steve Christensen and Kathy Sheets, and their families who continue to suffer to this day. Now, they were the primary victims. The secondary victims were the victims of Mark Hoffman's frauds and forgeries, which included the, the church. So this particular book looks at all of that, but particularly looks at it from inside the church perspective. So that leads me to one of the first questions. This was one that I had. Um, for all intents and purposes within the docu-series, you are the voice of the church. Everyone else is essentially there. They're members of the church or former members of the church, people that had interaction with Mark Hoffman. But, uh, but as far as the church or someone who is employed by the church at the time that they interviewed you, you were in fact still employed by the church. That's correct. And they, they approached me early on when they had the idea for this miniseries and came to my office, sat down and talked with me and asked for my cooperation, which I was happy to give. Now, I know that, uh, and this is a spoiler as well, let, we're not going to keep saying spoiler alert whenever we do this, but there's not anyone from within the church of, of a higher position than you that, that speaks or represents the church. Do you have any idea why? In this particular case, of course, they asked if I would participate. They asked if others might. Generally, senior church leaders don't do interviews for sort of dramatic uh, document, you know, document series and things like that. So it's just it's just sort of standard procedure. But uh, that being said, I, at the time that I did um, interview, I was the managing director of the church uh, public affairs or communications department, and so I was the senior church spokesperson yeah. on everything, in including this. Yeah. Was there? Uh, did you feel a lot of pressure being that representative of the church? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. You know, Tyler and, and Jared are really fun to work with. I enjoyed uh, doing the interview. We took basically a morning, I think it was, or an afternoon at the uh, Masonic Temple in Salt Lake. Uh, they had the equipment set up, and I, I then uh, just sat there and responded to questions. They're, they're a fun pair of filmmakers. You know, it was interesting. You said Masonic Lodge, and I saw that with some of the other folks, but I could have sworn it was one of the hallways of um, the Joseph Smith Memorial Building, thinking kind of one of the upper floors, like one of the hallways there, but got it wrong. That was another one of the questions that I had. Yeah, that was my, at least my portion was shot in the Masonic Temple. I think there may have been other venues as well for some of the shots. Uh, now I'm going to go to some questions. So we'll get these and people are can certainly send them to us as we talk. Uh, Richard said that he will do his best to answer those questions that we give him. 
Um, there are some that are going to get us super in the weeds here. Really, really, you know, finite, ticky-tacky questions, as I like to call it. This first one com- comes from Nick. says, is it true, while the documentary hinted that the church locked away the salamander le- letter to hide it from public scrutiny, didn't the church news actually publish the entire letter back in 1984 when it came into their possession? So, again, the, the thing you have to understand about the documentary is that the filmmakers had to take a very complicated story and fit it into three segments of less than an hour each. Mm-hmm. So they necessarily simplify things a great deal. The reality is that when the Salamander letter first came on the market, a, a person who's not even ma- named in the film uh, brought it to President Hinckley, Lynn Jacobs, and he offered it to President Hinckley, who took a look at it, read it, and said, I don't think we're interested. Mm. So he dec- declined purchasing it. At that point, it was circulated around. Eventually, it was purchased by Steve Christensen. Steve Christensen spent time uh, having people he thought were competent evaluate it and make a judgment about it. And so after, after it become public and he talked about it and, uh, and so forth, he then donated to the church. And within, uh, within the month, within a month of that donation, the church uh, published it. At the same time, President Hinckley essentially said, well, We'll have to accept the opinions of the document examiners for the president that the doc for the present that the document's authentic, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be. In other words, that the document is as old as it purports to be, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a forgery of that early time period. So he signaled immediately that he felt that it was probably a forgery. Okay, all right. Uh, this one from Jeffrey Bird. He says. When this all played out, my seminary teacher actually explained that the white salamander reference was a colloquial metaphor for a spiritual being. Did Mark Hoffman make this up, or is this used in other places? Uh, Mark Hoffman did not make that up. He he was aware of the sort of uh, mythological connotations of a white salamander, that sort of murky set of meanings that it had. And so I think he deliberately chose that, as he later said, to spice things up. Does that come from where we have the tremendous amount of writings uh, as the, with the Joseph Smith papers? Do we see a reference in anything that Joseph wrote that has been authenticated through the church about a white salamander? No, no, that's entirely from, from Hoffman's desire. I mean, Hoffman really had three motives in what he did, as best we can tell. Now, you know, He'll state what his motives are later to other people, but it appears from the evidence that he had three motives in mind when he was doing all of his um, forgeries. One of those things was he just didn't like authority. From an early age, he, he objected to authority generally. So he got a, a kind of perverse delight in doing things that made people in positions of authority uncomfortable. That was one motive. A second motive clearly was to make money. Uh, Hoffman lived off his forgeries for you know the five years from 1980 when he really got into it in earnest until uh, the bombs went off in 1985. And then the third motive was to change the narrative of church history, to spin it from the narrative that he had traditionally heard to one that aimed it towards uh, an era of folk magic and things like that. Another question kind of uh, going along uh, with that, this is also from Nick, he says, did the church purchase any other Hoffman documents or artifacts and if yes, have they been reviewed for authenticity? And what are those documents? In, in the back of my book, Victims, I publish a list of, I think it's 446 documents that the church acquired from Hoffman. Now, of those, roughly 400 of those were actually minor and unimportant legal documents that the church didn't actually acquire. He left them in church possession to evaluate and consider whether the church wanted to purchase any of them. They appear mostly to be genuine documents from repositories in the Midwest after the 
Hoffman bombings when it looked as though uh, Hoffman was was quite suspicious. We worried that those documents had been stolen from those repositories, so we returned those documents. But a list of all 446 of those documents is in an appendix to my book, Victims, so you can see all of the documents that were acquired. And those documents were submitted to document examiners. So to go just a little step further uh, about that, does the church then still today in 2021, this is from Brandon, have some of the forged items that Hoffman sold them? uh, And did any of those, because we learned in the documentary, well, actually, let me just say, do we still have any of those? And then I'll ask the follow-up question. Yes, we do. Uh, And then did uh, Hoffman ever sell the church any legitimate documents? We learned that he was able to um, purchase some legitimate documents with the money that he got from selling these forged documents. Are any what that he sold the church uh, legitimate? So the, as I mentioned, there are 446 documents that are listed in the appendix of those probably 400 are legal documents that are legitimate, but they're not extremely important. All of Hoffman's great finds were forgeries. And occasionally, and you'll see this if you read if you read my book, Victims, you'll see that occasionally he would take an authentic document and spruce it up a little bit. He would add a signature that would make it more valuable, for example. In the case of the Salamander letter, there was not a great sampling of Martin Harris's handwriting other than a few uh, signatures. And so he took an authentic book of common prayer that he purchased from Deseret Book. That's a, a you know, Protestant prayer book. And he put an unsigned inscription in it. And then later on, that inscription turned out to match exactly the handwriting from the Salamander letter. And so it was considered to be Martin Harris handwriting that validated the handwriting of the Salamander letter. And of course, as as I point out in my book, you'll, you'll see if you read it, the whole purpose of the Salamander letter, besides creating Besides meeting those three motives that I said Hoffman had, there was a longer term purpose that he conceived as early as his mission. I, I heard from a, this week from someone who served a mission with him that even back then he was talking about the 116 pages and a desire to discover those. Well, what he was doing with the Salamander letter was creating a sample of Martin Harris's handwriting. And of course, the 116 pages would be in Martin Harris's hand. So we have notes that Hoffman took showing that ultimately his goal was to forge the 116 pages, which, of course, would have been extremely valuable. Uh, All right. So this question is from John. I just want to make sure that I catch it all. I'm interested to hear if Rick is aware of fraudulent artifacts that were successfully or unsuccessfully sold to the church. Also, and a couple of people have asked this question, where do these fraudulent artifacts from this case reside at present? So the answer is yes. Uh, among those documents, you know, 40 some, 40 to 50 of those documents that came from Hoffman uh, would be in that category of suspect. Either we know them to be forgeries or they're, they're highly suspect. They're listed in the book. When Hoffman was discovered to be a forger, all of those items were collected up and put together in a Hoffman collection so that they, when people came in, uh, they wouldn't find them otherwise in the collection and suppose that they were real. Now, that being said, Hoffman did dealings all over the country. And we now know that one of his techniques was to take a forgery, go to an institution that had genuine documents and plant the forgery in the collection. He might get a folder of documents and hide that one inside or make an inscription in a book and so forth. So regrettably, he's potentially tainted the historical collections of of many of the most prominent institutions in the country. Are there other uh, secular documents that that has called into question? Uh, well, absolutely. So there's a there's an article that you can find online in the Manchester Guardian 
in which an individual is writing and saying that he read my book, Victims, and got a sinking feeling in his stomach about an Emily Dickinson poem that he purchased. He then traced that back and found out that it was a genuine original Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And we know from, again, you can see at the back of my book, I have an appendix in which I point out that after Hoffman went to prison, the prison officials shaking down his cell found a pinhole in his mattress, and they reached into the pinhole and pulled out a rolled up piece of prison stationery. On one side of that piece of stationery, Hoffman had been trying to recall and wrote down the names of, or the, all of the names of people whose autographs he had forged in the Latter-day Saint market. And we know from that list and comparing it to known forgeries that in fact, that's an accurate list. Then on the other side, he lists the Americana figures whose signatures he had forged. And it's a who's who of prominent figures in American history. Wow. Yeah, it's something to to me, and I was struck that I felt this way when I watched it. I mean, he's horrible. He's a murderer who killed people, but he's also a genius. And I was I was struck for a minute at his genius. Essentially, what he did was he decided to begin forging when he was in his mid-teens. And so he read books about forgery. He read books about detecting forgeries. He even went so far, as you can see in the in the film, to train his body not to react to a lie detector test. So he was a he was a person who took some talents that he had and applied them in exactly the wrong direction. You know, initially he had been a he had been a pre-med student. Think what would have happened if he turned those talents to becoming a really adept surgeon because he had good hand-eye coordination or, or towards research and doing something like cancer research. You know, I'm a cancer survivor. I, I would much rather have had him devote those talents to to uh, solving cancer problems than to committing the crimes that he committed. Absolutely. It, it was funny. It was not funny. Funny is not the right word for it. I, I just, it stopped me for a second because I didn't think that I would have that sort of like awe of the talent that he had as far as that goes. I just thought he just said, you know, kind of forged some things, but there you have it. Uh, I want to get back to some more questions. Rebecca asks, do we know of any controversial elements that Hoffman planned to include in the 116 pages? Uh, there are some notes. I don't have a copy of notes in my possession right now to reference in order to answer that. But the, the basic answer is yes. He would have made the 116 pages very much along the lines of the salamander letter, sort of twisting everything towards a folk magic point of view. Uh, someone asks, will we one day see the Hoffman collection at the Church History Library as a special collection that we'll be able to witness and, and put together like they do with some other things within our history? Um, I don't know, since I don't work there anymore, but I, I think it's entirely possible. Really? Well, that surprises me with what, uh, how it seems like, uh, at least in some ways, I haven't seen a lot from the mainstream church, and maybe it's just because they don't want to indulge in the Netflix special or they feel like it's in the past. I haven't seen too much of a response from, or, or any really, from the church itself. So you can actually find a church history topic article on the Hoffman forgeries. Just look up Hoffman forgeries at the church's website. You can find that. Interesting. Okay, good to know. And we can make sure that we leave that in the show notes. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. 
When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. I want to take a, a, a quick break while we're chatting here and remind people, uh, the Cultural Hall, we put out two hour-long episodes every week. If you're just finding this on Facebook, you should find the Cultural Hall wherever you get podcasts. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we really got into Richard Turley's life uh, in episode 416. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, we are 500 episodes strong of the Cultural Hall. Uh, and you can also get things like this, special treats, Q&As, if you uh, find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. It's a way for you to financially support all of the work that we do here. Let's see here. John asks, uh, can anyone access uh, the any of the Hoffman documents in the historical archives or are they all cordoned off? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that if you had a legitimate purpose for accessing them, you could. I, for example, probably the, the most famous of the documents is the Salamander Letter, and yet I, I personally have brought that out and allowed filmmakers uh, to use it when they, when they need access to it. Generally, when you, when you have a digital copy of something or access to it in another way, the general request is that you use the digital copy instead because that's that preserves the original from handling. Mm -hmm. But if you were to show a, a sufficient cause in the past, when I've been in charge, I've, I've brought out Hoffman originals for people who had, a, I mean, if you think about it for a minute, if you're a filmmaker, would you rather film a, a digital copy? Would you rather film the real thing? Obviously you'd rather film the real thing. So we've allowed that to happen in the past. Are you connected enough now? This question is from me. Are you connected enough still that we could go look at the salamander letter together sometime? Uh, well, I'm retired. <laughs> ah, all right. Worth a shot. It was worth a shot. I'm asking everyone else's question, so I figured I'd ask mine as well. Uh, Rick wants to know, as part of this whole thing, was there an actual bomb attempt against the church or President Hinckley? The first bomb was at the judge building against Steve Christensen. The second bomb was intended for Gary Sheets, but unfortunately killed one of his family members. Um, in fact, Coffin was so cold about it, he basically said he didn't care if it killed a child, an animal, or whatever. Now that was that was quite a cold act on his part to aim it at Gary Sheets, but not care who he killed. The third bomb went off in Hoffman's vehicle. He later claimed it was a suicide attempt. More likely, it was intended for someone else. Uh, there are several possible victims. Uh, high on the list would be Brent Ashworth, who used to meet with Hoffman on the very uh, weekday that, that that bomb went off and was scheduled to meet with him that day, but didn't. Uh, and Ashworth was one of those to whom he owed a lot, so he would have been a natural victim. Uh, but because that bomb went off uh, close to church headquarters, you never know who it was for. All right. I want to get back to this. This is a question from Nick. He says, back in the late 2000s, there was a proposed photography daguerreotype of Joseph Smith that was being circulated as being authentic. Other artifacts have come forward that claim historical, albeit less controversial, significance. How has the Hoffman fiasco changed the church's approach to such documents or historical artifacts as a result? It's changed things several ways. First of all, uh, we have security that we didn't have before. Some of that security is obvious. Some of it is not obvious uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey, what all the security elements are, or they wouldn't be as effective as they are. Second, it it allowed us to develop techniques we use in order to be able to detect forgeries and detect theft and fraud. And again, I'm not going to tell you what all of those are, or sure. less their uh, effectiveness. And third, it created a tremendous amount of skepticism. 
So during the 34 years that I worked at church headquarters, I was always skeptical of new findings, particularly big ones. And I had people several times try to pull the wool over my eyes, Hoffman style, <laughs> including with photographs. I'll let me just say on the photograph question, there are old pictures that purport to be of Joseph Smith. And people have written books and articles trying to justify these photographs as being of Joseph Smith. But I will just say categorically for listeners that there is not a photograph of Joseph Smith that can categorically and absolutely without doubt be proven to be of him. Now, you mentioned within being, uh, with, being with the church for those 34 years, what was this the most significant artifact that came about in your time? Uh, absolutely. The most, effect, the most important artifact that I helped to acquire was the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon, for which we, we paid a, a hefty price, a world record price at the time. It's still a world record. Uh, we know that document is authentic because it has excellent provenance. It's been in the possession of the community of Christ, uh, formerly went by Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, since the early 20th century. And the provenance from there was from Oliver Cowdery to David Whitmer to David Whitmer's grandson and then to the community of Christ. So we know that one's authentic. And I flew out to Independence, Missouri, and personally examined that document before we uh, purchased it, and I brought it back to Salt Lake. What, what was the price on that? $35 million. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Uh, and, and were they hesitant? Was it uh, uh, they knew it would be in good hands? What was the relationship like when we acquired that? I, I think there were several factors that went into the acquisition. One of them was financial need on the part of the community of Christ. They had a tremendous financial need. Second, as part of the Joe Smith Papers project, we were publishing a very good images of the document. Uh, a third issue is that we have in the Church History Library extraordinary facilities for preserving materials for a long period of time. So I think all of those factors went into uh, the offer on the part of the community of Christ for us to purchase it and our acceptance of that offer. Are, are there artifacts out there that the church does not own that you think are exciting that you would like the church to own or that as we kind of talk artifacts that you're like, ooh, this, this gets you excited? Yes, there are a lot of artifacts in public and private possession that would be nice to, you know, to acquire. Yeah, I think people would be surprised to know how much is actually out there. But once again, normally when we acquire something, particularly if it's significant, we're going to go to a considerable amount of effort to assure ourselves that it's authentic before we acquire it. I say we, I'm retired. <laughs> I'm speaking the work that I don't, but I'm, I'm trying to reflect the feeling that existed when I was there. This I, We've sort of touched on it, but I want to make sure that we address it. This is from Andrew. He says, are there any documents the church has that we just don't know if they're authentic or not? Uh, there are some documents that we've acquired over the years that we have uh, questions about. Y you know, what's interesting is that when you go through a period like the Hoffman case, you then begin to use the skills that you develop from learning about that to, to look at other things, including some things that are already in the church's possession. A forgery as a, as a craft, as a crime, is not new with Hoffman. In the first chapter of my book, which is called Alterations of the Past, a little double entendre there, <laughs> I go through some of the forgeries of the past that have been uh, foisted on, on the public. So Forgery is not new either in uh, church history or in American history or world history. Forgery is actually, uh, unfortunately, common enough to have many things that were forged be accepted today as authentic. 
We are taking everyone's questions. If you want to drop them in the comments, a huge shout out to Andrew who's helping those get those to me so that I can ask them of Richard. Uh, you can drop them on the comments wherever you're watching this. Uh, and if you're not ordinarily following the page that you're watching, I encourage you to follow that. Uh, we're going to start doing more and more stuff like this. Not always with you, Richard. It's fine. We'll have other people. Uh, like, for example, an episode later this week, we visit with uh, Richard Bushman, the author of Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, get to know a lot about him, both uh, Joseph Smith questions, and we get to know about a lot about his upbringing, things I've never known about him or heard from any other interviews. So make sure that you follow the Cultural Hall on all the social media places and then follow the show uh, available in podcast form wherever you get podcasts. Um, this is from Rick. He says, is the Father's blessing given by the Prophet Joseph Smith on the 17th of January, 1844, to his son, Joseph Smith III, to the effect that this son was his appointed successor, all false, from Hoffman? So the document itself is a forgery, but the reason Hoffman was able to create that forgery is that there was a tradition that suggested that there might have been such a blessing, but there wasn't documentary evidence, and Hoffman came up with the documentary evidence. Are there other Hoffman incidents out there, but that did not lead to murder? Oh, yes. Hoffman began forging or faking things in his mid-teens. You know, he started off uh, as a coin collector, and he very quickly realized that some coins you want to put in your coin collecting book are hard to find in circulation. He had a chemistry set, and he learned that you could use chemical or physical means to add a mint mark. So he took a coin that lacked a mint mark, and he used an electroplating device to put the mint mark on the coin. The coin ended up going through various uh, authenticating hands until it was certified by a, a, an agency, a government agency, and then it came back to him as authentic. And so at that point, he realized he could, do, he could create reality out of falsehood, and he could make money through his forging. And so there's, I'm sure that there are numerous items in circulation right now both in the coin collecting market, the money collecting market, and the market of documents and printed items and photographs and so forth that are Hoffman originals or alterations that are still out there. And some of those are, of course, still being presented as authentic. And there are items like that in people's collections that have not yet uh, surfaced for the public. Well, and they make them, that makes them obviously collectible, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, you hate to see a, a criminal's paper, a criminal's criminal materials become valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, regrettably, there is a strong market for that kind of, you know, for people who collect Al Capone or they collect uh, the writings or other memorabilia for criminals. Uh, Robert asks, are there any documents or artifacts that the church has that might surprise us in a good way? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the Joseph Smith papers over time, I think, has, has brought out some of the very finest ones. And because... The Joseph Smith Papers volumes are not read by millions of people. I think if you were to go to look at the Joseph Smith Papers, you'd be quite surprised at the materials that are there. Let me, let me just give you a few examples of what we've published through the Joseph Smith Papers. I mentioned uh, the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon, which we published. There's also the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, which we'll be publishing. Those I would consider to be the two most valuable and most important items in the church's collection. The third most important item has also been published by the Joseph Smith Papers, and it's called the Book of Commandments and Revelations. Essentially, it's the manuscript book into which Joseph's earliest revelations were hand-copied that was used to create the first bound version of Joseph Smith's revelations called a Book of Commandments. 
The printed book, a book of commandments, is worth today in the millions of dollars. This is the manuscript that went into creating it. And so I would put it on the list at number three of the most important items in the church's possession. The original manuscript, the Book of Mormon 1, the printer's manuscript 2, and the Book of Commandments and Revelations 3. Most church members don't know about that because they haven't taken a look at the Joseph Smith papers. Far West Record is a later copy of early minutes of the church, representing some of the earliest material that we have on the church's history. That, too, has been published, the the important parts, the journal parts, and the minutes uh, that's that's been made available either in a bound volume or in, on the Joseph Smith Papers website. So I strongly encourage people to look at the Joseph Smith Papers volumes. And if you don't want to get the volumes, look at the website, which has more than the volumes have in them. Uh, you know, it's interesting too. talking to my church history nerdy friends. They talk about how they're excited that the notes for the Council of 50 are being made available for the Joseph Smith Papers. And some people may hear that and not even know. In my layman's terms of kind of explaining it, I think of think of it like Fight Club for the uh, LDS Church. It's a thing that we don't talk about because it was secret, but we don't talk about it. But lots of it came about from it. I know that's sort of a crude way of explaining it, but but that's that's exciting to so many people, and I haven't even scratched a surface on on what those notes contain. Yes, the Council of Fifty Minutes are extraordinary. Uh, they are another item that I think uh, go down on the list of some of the most interesting items that, that uh, the church owns and that has been made available recently through the Joseph Smith Papers. It's volume one of the administrative series of the Joseph Smith Papers. And so the essentially the Council of Fifty is an organization that Joseph Smith developed in 1843 after he realized that the civil rights of church members were not going to be guaranteed at the local level. They were not going to be guaranteed at the state level and they were not going to be guaranteed at the federal level. So at that point, he had this idea, you know what, let's move west. And perhaps out West, we can create a government that will allow civil rights for us and all other people, people of other faiths, not just ours. And so essentially, it lays the foundation for the later trek led by Brigham Young to Utah in 1846 across Iowa and 1847 to Utah. So they're very important documents. They also have a lot of people just talking openly and in some cases angrily mm-hmm. about circumstances at the time. So they give you a, they give you a view inside this important council uh, that's quite phenomenal. Let's get back to the Hoffman stuff, says someone. <laughs> uh, John asks, did the Hoffman incident impact missionary work in the mid-80s? Did numbers go up? Did numbers go down because of it? I don't know about the numbers. I'd have to go back and look at missionary statistics, but I think undoubtedly it did affect missionary work, and it may have affected it uh, both directions. I mean, sometimes things like that cut both ways. On the one hand, it may have made some people more skeptical, more hesitant to accept the missionaries' messages. On the other hand, you know, as as often uh, people say, advertising is all good, whether it's good or bad. You know, politicians sometimes feel that way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that the the coverage given to the Hoffman case nationally could have created interest on the part of some people who otherwise might have closed the door against missionaries. Hard to know without doing it. More careful study. Uh, Amy asks, do we know, did he ever talk to his dad again after he confessed? Uh, you know, you, one thing you see in the miniseries is pictures of his father. And I do know from people who knew his father that this was extremely difficult. His father had faith in his son, as you know, as many fathers would. And I think it was emotionally very, very hard on his father. Uh, someone asks... How soon after the conviction sentencing was Mark Hoffman excommunicated from the church, and how was that orchestrated? I don't know the answer to that. That's normally done at the local level. 
but uh, the general church policy at that time, and I think it, you know, I haven't checked the policy book lately, but generally people's, uh, the, the general policy was that you, you wait until there's been a criminal conviction before you convene a, a disciplinary council as they were, you know, one, once called. Um, and so I suspect that it, if it, it probably did not occur until after his plea bargain. Someone asks, have you ever spoken to Mark Hoffman? When I began writing my book, it became uh, public knowledge. In fact, as soon as word became available that I was going to write this book about Hoffman, it was that that piece of news by itself became above the fold front page news in the Salt Lake Tribune. And so very quickly, people were aware I was writing this book. I had two people approach me with messages from Mark. One was one of his close friends was featured in the miniseries that I won't name. But he came to me and said, Mark knows that you're writing the book and he wants to help you. Now, I knew from my studies that Mark is a pathological liar and that it wouldn't be possible for me to take simply an oral transmission and count that as a message from Mark. So I told this person, that's wonderful. Have him put it in writing. Never heard anything more. Mm. Then I had somebody who was part of the local church organization at the prison serving there as a church service person who approached me and said, Mark has come to me and has said he knows you're writing this book and he wants to help you. And I gave him the same message, tell him to put it in writing. I never got anything. I approached his attorney, Ron Yangich, and asked for permission to talk with Mark, and that was denied. Hmm. Would you have interest in talking to him if you could now? Sure. I'd be happy to you know, talk to him on a recorded interview. I wouldn't take everything he said at face value, however. Sure, sure, but like for me, like I would just be interested in in, in for interest's sake, I guess. Sure. What what with yep. him being so closed off to what seems like everyone to know that I had been granted that opportunity, I would take that just for pure curiosity. Uh, Andrew asks: In the recent Come Follow Me, we see that record keeping was important from day one of the church organization. Why is record keeping so important? So let me back up and talk about record keeping the church. Joseph Smith and his family were not great record keepers. Okay. They weren't journal keepers. Uh, today, you know, a lot of people keep journals. Joseph Smith and his family did not. So oftentimes people ask me, well, why didn't Joseph Smith write down the first vision when he had it? Why didn't he write down Moroni's visits when he had them? My answer is simple. He didn't write down anything. When did he become culturally sensitive to the idea of record keeping? When he was doing the translation of the book of Lehi, that was later lost, those 116 pages, he would have been reading information, I think, that would have sensitized him to the need for records. So in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, the earliest text we have, and and you got to distinguish between text and a copy of a text, but the earliest text we have is from 1828, that year when he was doing that translation work. So I think he developed, began to develop a sensitivity to keeping records in 1828. Then when the church was organized on April 6, 1830, Joseph Smith's first revelation begins, Behold, there shall be a record kept among you. And so record keeping was commanded from that first day uh, of the church's organization. But that doesn't mean that he immediately went out and bought a journal and started writing. He, he doesn't really acquire a notebook and begin writing until the 27th of November, 1832, when he makes a very uh, hesitant kind of journal entry that's not very good, frankly, when it comes to writing. But he knows he has this commandment. And so he keeps trying systematically over the years, I should say haltingly over the years, to create a systematic uh, way of keeping history, his own personal history and the church history. And eventually he comes up with the 1838 history that's now uh, the so-called Joseph Smith history published into what's now the documentary history of the church. 
Uh, there's some challenges with that history in that he was only halfway through it. Well, first of all, he dictated only a small portion of it, and much of the rest of it, he just furnished notes to scribes who wrote it up for him as though he were writing it himself. And then it's only about halfway done by the time he died. So if you look at that blue bound documentary history of the church, you need to deconstruct it to find out how much of it is him, how much of it is scribes. And the Joseph Smith Papers Project has tools online that allow you to do that. So basically, you need to recognize that as an important source at the time that was done the way people did history at the time, but our, our historical approaches have changed since then. And if you really want to know what Joseph Smith said or did, go to the Joseph Smith Papers. You know, there you you started this conversation off, and you talked about that the, the you know the real the real victims of this whole thing first and foremost were those that perished in in the bombing. Have you had any sort of contact with the families of those individuals, either when you were writing your book or with this recent resurgence because of the docu series? And how are they? So over the years, I have had contact with both families, the, the Christensen family and the Sheets family. I think that. They have moved on. They continue to have you know, great emotional pain thinking about the murders of their relatives, but uh, they've all moved on to doing other kinds of things. Uh, I, think, I think many of you saw the article in the Desert News recently about how Mac Christensen paid for Mark Hoffman's son to outfit for his mission, something that Mac didn't want known, but you know, now that Mac's passed away is, is frequently voiced about. Gary Sheets, after his wife's murder, eventually remarried and moved into the ward where I was serving as bishop. Huh. So Gary was one of my parishioners at the time. I've since spoken to various other family members. I don't want to name them because their conversations are between, between us. But I, when, when somebody commits a crime this horrendous, the, the fallout from that crime is going to last for a long time. Uh, this is kind of an interesting question. Andrew asks, is there anything that you find faith-promoting about the Hoffman incident? You know, it's, it's really interesting. In my book, I have, uh, I have a couple of scriptures that I quote, and those scriptures come from sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and you know, they talk about the last 116 pages and what's going to happen to people who are going to try to, to alter the 116 pages to make them vary from what they originally were. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that, they, that it talks about is they're going to fall into their own trap which is a fascinating kind of uh, verse when you consider that Hoffman ends up bombing himself and that his the trap he set for other people ends up backfiring on him and putting him in prison for life. I don't consider faith promoting, but what I do consider faith promoting is that a lot of people who weren't interested in church history, maybe before that time, took a greater interest in it. And I've always said that uh, the problem, people have asked me, well, you know, particularly the Hoffman bombings and so forth, is, is church history dangerous? Is church history, you know, going to destroy my faith? And my answer is always the same, which is, no, the problem is not knowing enough about church history. Now, I've always strongly encouraged people to learn as much about it as they can. We know that there are lots of people watching, and uh, now is the last call for questions. If you guys have any questions, just drop them in the comments so we can make sure that we get them in. I wanted to be respectful of uh, Richard Turley's time, so we got about 10 minutes left, a solid hour with Richard tonight, unless, of course, he's going to leave earlier than an hour, in which case, that's his right. If he turns his camera off, he's gone. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly. One with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're going to be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. 
At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, if you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, we've arranged with some banks to offer 12-month special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now, because at PC Laptops, we're here for you, and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com. I would to wonder, do you think that we'll hear anything about this at a general conference coming up in a couple weeks? I don't know. You know, the conference addresses are are created by the people who are giving the talks. You know, I'm retired. They don't ask me <laughs> a lot about it anymore. <laughs> probably, probably a good thing. You're like, guys, I'm retired. Leave, I, I worked there for a good long time. I retain contacts there and friends, but I, I'm not in the same role I was before. What do you feel like needed to be added to the documentary? Uh, well, as I said, necessarily, Jared and Tyler simplified things in order to make it understandable to the public. But I do think that I had a number of people come to me with questions since the documentary, things they're concerned about. And I basically said, you know, get a copy of my book. Go to, you don't have to buy it. Go to the library. I'm sure there's plenty of copies, particularly in Utah and the libraries. Get those and read the book because there's a lot of nuance and detail that necessarily couldn't be captured in a three-segment miniseries. So there's a lot of detail. Sometimes, you know, they say the, the devil's in the details. Well, there's, there's a lot of things that you won't understand unless you understand the details and the nuance that you'll find in the book. Uh, and I would push people towards uh, episode 496 of the Cultural Hall. I actually visited with Tyler and Jared, and they talked to us through a little bit of the process. I have a feeling that the original sort of like screener that they started to put in front of audiences was way more nerdy and way more, you know, deep in the weeds than the than what we got because they expressed how they th they sort of anticipated that lots of people knew what they were talking about and realized that they needed to go even more general to get people on board to be able to explain more of the early roots of the church to um, be able to understand the significance of what was being purported with some of these things. So. I, I, I would be curious, and I asked them, and there's no way we're going to get it, but I would be curious to see that original run of what they put together that was just too much in the weeds for people to really understand, but that we would love for sure. Is there anything that is in the documentary that you feel like is misleading? Yeah, some people have come to me concerned because of implications in the first episode about, you know, the, the church maybe being behind the bombings or other things that seemed rather sinister. The thing you have to understand about what they did and about my book as well is that in both cases, my book and that documentary, they were trying to convey the way things were at the time and people were speculating in that direction. They were wrong, but they were speculating in that direction. So uh, some people have been bothered very much by that type of sinister speculation. And I would simply say, take that in the context in which it was offered, which is that that was speculation at the time. As Jared and Tyler often say, when you get to the end of the, of the miniseries, it's clear the church was a victim. The good guys win. Paul wants to know, where is the Salamander letter today? Today, the letter's at the Church History Library. Ooh, come on, let's go. I'll buy you lunch. Let's just go see some of your old friends. I'll dress. Listen, if I need to wear a white shirt and tie, I'll get the old placard out. You can get your placard. We'll go together. Again, you would have to establish why you need access to the original and not just a copy. Uh, how about pure interest and I'm your friend? Does that does that count? 
you can imagine that if everybody did that, the document would wear out fairly quickly. <laughs> well, sure, sure. But you don't have that many friends, though, Richard. Let's just no, I'm just teasing you. Uh, but, let's see what else we've got here. Those documents. <laughs> yeah, you get, you get lots of friends when they know that you might be the key for them to be able to see it. I want to make sure that we get all the questions that people sent in. Again, people that are part of our Patreon group, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Uh, this is probably speculative, but I want to give her a question at least air to be said. Do you think that Mark would have killed his family members if they were if they had found out he was lying? Do you think he would have been that desperate? You know, Mark Hoffman used his family members, which is pretty cold. If, I mean, if you knew his entire life story, you'd recognize it, that he was just living a life from beginning to end. Having not cared whether his bomb killed Gary Sheets, Kathy Sheets, a child, or, or anybody else, I think he's cold, cold-hearted enough that it's difficult to know where his uh, killing might have ended if it was in you know, to his advantage. So obviously it's a speculative question. We can't give a definitive answer, but we can answer that he was a, he was a pathological liar and killer. Is there anything that in anticipation of, uh, of us chatting tonight that you thought, Oh, surely we would talk about this and we haven't yet. Uh, no, to, uh, to tell you the truth, I've been so busy today. I haven't had time to think about it. <laughs> Uh, then, then, then maybe this is, unless someone pops one in here, cause we just do have a couple minutes left. Uh, a lot of people that I have talked about, uh, the murder among the Mormons, a special over on Netflix that, uh, Richard Turley was involved as being one of the interviewed subjects is people talk about discernment and how we feel like the leaders of the church should have been prompted by God in some way to know, Hey, these things are fake and been able to have that witness uh, because they're not only able to see them, hear about them, but they're able to touch them, etc., and that they should have had some sort of witness from God that they weren't real. In my book, Victims, I have two parts to the book, and at the beginning of each part, I have a passage from the Doctrine and Covenants. And the first passage that I quote to begin part one is the following from the Doctrine and Covenants, quote, you cannot always tell the wicked from the righteous, close quote. In other words, doctrinally speaking, theologically speaking, the, the theological construct is that if God grants agency to all people, he can't grant his leaders omniscience to know in all circumstances whether they're going to do right or whether they're going to do wrong or it would interfere with the agency of the individuals. So you're going to have church leaders, you're going to have church members who are, temp- who are occasionally deceived by people who are trying to do wrong. I mean, church leaders are going to get deceived, even though they have positions of authority and the spirit and church members are going to be deceived for the same reason. So if if you could potentially be deceived by somebody, you ought to cut the same slack for church leaders. I like it. Uh, It doesn't look like there are any other questions. So, Richard, I will let you return to your evening. Uh, I would for everyone to find the Cultural Hall wherever they get uh, shows that are available in podcast form. Uh, you can also find us at the Cultural Hall on all social medias. Uh, you've been very gracious with your time, both with your previous episode and with your time tonight. Uh, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you are not healthy enough to listen this week, that you will be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.